Hello, right-minded listeners. I just want to thank the Miami Book Fair for all of the fantastic authors they have uh, rounded up for us to to talk with on right-minded. Sarah Manguzo, Steve Allman, David Yoon, Angie Cruz, and Jochito Gonzalez are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for the Miami Book Fair 2022, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They are all gathering on right-minded as well. Thanks to the folks at the Miami Book Fair. And, and you know, they, along with Patty Smith, Chef Ken Corbin, Zibby Owens, Moshe Safdie, Ross Gay, Stacey Schiff, are, are, are looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everybody in person, but also in recorded conversations. So be sure to listen in. Uh, for more information, go to Miami Book Fair or follow MBF at, at Miami Book Fair. Hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. I bet you could just Google Miami Book Fair and find out all of this information. So tune in and a big thanks to the Miami Book Fair. Hello, storytellers, story benders, and story lassoers. Welcome to another episode of Right Minded and another episode brought to us from the Miami Book Fair. And Grant, we've gotten some pretty amazing guests out of this festival. So I do want to put the Miami Book Fair on people's radars and just book festivals more generally because they do amazing work for not a lot of payoff other than just the general amazing payoff of connecting authors to community and vice versa. Yeah, it's true. There are so many great ones, and we've both been involved with uh, Lit Quake and the Bay Area Book Festival, of course. And I'm, I'm going to try to go to the Los Angeles and Portland and Tucson book festivals next year. It's going to be an ambitious year for me. Nice. And the Brooklyn Book Festival is high on my list as well. And there are a lot of smaller regional ones that are really charming and intimate, and I might even prefer them. The thing I love about the Book Fest is that you get to be with your fellow book-minded people, celebrating books and writing, rubbing elbows with authors, hearing readings and panels, and and, you know, books come alive. They feel super important. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, speaking of books coming alive, that's a good segue to this week's guests and this week's topic. We have Sochil Gonzalez, and I am excited to talk to her because her book, Olga Dies Dreaming, is one of those epic stories that makes you marvel at how an author can fit so much into the pages of a single book. And this is a book that has a lot going on, uh, but at its heart, it's about two siblings. One is a congressman and the other is a wedding planner. And they have this radical activist mother who they haven't seen in more than two decades. And it's about the politics of Puerto Rico, the politics of family. Uh, and, you know, Grant, this was one of those books that I had just been hearing about for forever. I mean, weeks and months and friends of mine had read it. Uh, and then we got the Miami Book Fair list and she was on there and I had to push the book to the top of my pile. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah, I agree. And this is maybe one of the things that most helps me about having our podcast book, which is that it shuffles and sorts my reading list in such a way and compels me to read books that I want to read but haven't yet, almost always do to time constraints. But this one, like you, it had been on my radar because of, of how much it tackles the topic of Puerto Rico, which I'm really fascinated by. You know, Puerto Rico is a marginalized state and a state that's not getting what it needs as it gets pummeled by hurricanes each year in particular. And what I love about this book is how uh, Sochil uses story to paint a broader political critique of what's going on in Puerto Rico, but she does it in such a way that you're not getting hit over the head with it, but rather absorbing her message and its importance because you you care about the story and the characters. And and I read uh, the New York Times book review uh, just before coming on today, and I thought they put it perfectly. The question the reviewer asked was, how to illuminate a presumably poorly informed audience 
me about complex <laughs> sociopolitical realities without also knocking readers out of what John Gardner called fiction's vivid and continuous dream. So it's super challenging, but she handled it gracefully. I totally agree. And it's such a gift when an author can do that well. And obviously, that's what good stories do. And this is a radical story. So I love that New York Times review. And that's exactly what I thought, because I care about these issues. But other people might come to it and feel, you know, not particularly conscious of what's going on in Puerto Rico, uh, you know, not really thinking so much about the fact that the United States is failing them in so many ways. And so Chile really takes hard aim at the U.S. for its policies on Puerto Rico, but then it's told in this personal context. And so you don't totally realize how political it is. Uh, I mean, I did because I was kind of keyed in, but I think you could easily read it, you know, if you were just kind of an everyday fiction reader and, you know, it's like subliminal messages in a sense, um, you know, like like this stuff matters through the lens of these characters. Um, and, and, you know, it made me think of the maxim, the personal is political and how true that is in fiction, of course. You know, and the siblings who are at the heart of the story, they have really different agendas. They have different ways in which their mother's absence affects them. Uh, as we said, you know, politics is at the heart of the story because the brother whose name is Prieto, is a congressman. And then Olga, the protagonist, she's a wedding planner, but she rubs elbows with really important and influential people in her line of work because she's catering to the wealthy. And so there's just a lot of commentary about wealth and corruption and pay-to-play politics and so much more. And then about race and stereotypes that any racial minority has to live with, but especially in this context with Latinos. And Puerto Ricanos in particular. And then she writes, you know, like a lot of people who are writing about interactions racially, you know, there's like this beautiful but cringy stuff, you know, like Olga is very sexualized in an over-the-top way for her body and also just for her very Latina-ness. But I love the book for all of those reasons, you know, the social commentary and critique. Uh, and the story was so readable to the point that I you know, really thought it could be a beach read. And I dare say chiclet. Uh-oh. There's the <laughs> word. Uh, yeah, chiclet puts it in a whole different category from the way you were describing it earlier um, as a political critique. And so, yeah, go deeper with that, Brooke. Tell us more about chiclet and political critique. I mean... Maybe Sochil would be horrified by that characterization, and I certainly don't mean it in a derogatory way. Chicklet is really just a stupid way to characterize fast-paced stories that center female characters and female storylines. Olga Dies Dreaming is much more than that, of course, and she's got plenty of male characters and storylines. And, I, you know, I've been saying it's an important book, but could it be characterized as chiclet? I, I mean, I think it can be. And I think one of the things is that this speaks to how we categorize books in this culture or in book publishing and how many books have more than one categorization. Like it's fast paced and it's highly readable, but it's also radical. And I struggle with categorizations for this exact reason or not exactly like struggle with the categories themselves, but more the notion that we have to choose one because of course, like books straddle so many different categories. So why can't you have, you know, a radical narrative that is, you know, chick lit 
but also serious fiction? I think that those are questions that I've always grappled with. And then I also think that this kind of fiction is subversive in a way, right? Because right now, especially with all the social justice and race stuff that we're grappling with as a country, there are lots and lots of writers who are packaging really intense, transformative, radical plots into these fast-paced, upbeat stories. And as a result, I think they're getting more eyes on these books that are actually really transgressive. And I think that's awesome. It's interesting how um, I guess we don't really allow for the radical to also be readable and enjoyable. It's kind of strange. And like you say, why not? And I guess these books, they're, they're transgressive in the sense that, that they reach more people and people who might not necessarily hold the views that the author holds. And, and that's good, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Aya de Leon, who's our friend, and she'll be returning to the podcast, has talked about this a lot because she's written a whole series of heist books, and they're loaded with feminism and progressive politics and climate justice plots and subplots. And what I love about the current climate for fiction is that a lot of writers are writing with causes in mind. And this has long been the case, but I think we're seeing a resurgence right now. So on that note, Grant, because I know you track this kind of stuff, uh, what are some of the most salient examples you could cite of authors in previous eras or more recently, you know, that have done exactly that? Yeah, and I just want to um, strike a note of caution here again that it's super hard to write a successful novel. Caution is the wrong word. It's just super hard to write a successful novel that's also a social critique because there's a danger, and I think you mentioned this, of being too didactic or too heavy-handed. So, so when an author can can pull it off, it's a really big feat. And you know, just to riff off the top of my head, um, some novels that have operated critiques, you know, of course, like The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood and The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. But those are, you know, frequently mentioned. So I'm thinking of uh, The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Uh, more contemporarily, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Mm-hmm. And also Where We Come From, a novel by Oscar Cesaris, uh, which came out just a few years ago. Um, and then uh, I loved Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning by Kathy uh, Park Hong. And I'm just going to name a couple of the guests that we've had on the show as well. Put forward uh, Fear of Flying by Erica Jong and Dear Martin by Nick Stone. Yeah, such good examples, Grant. Thank you. And I love it when we mention people we've had on the show because people can go back and listen to those old episodes. Uh, And we're specifically seeing a lot of books by writers of color, too, who know firsthand of colonialism and oppression and social and environmental justice topics are high on people's minds right now. Uh, You know, and so these are people who are fighting for causes in their fiction and they're working to change hearts and minds. And I think it's much more effective and possible these days to change hearts and minds through fiction rather than through other means like social media or even activism or just plain civil discourse. So maybe fiction will save us, Grant. We can at least hold out hope. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's strange to say, but I actually think fiction will play a big role in saving us. And I think you can actually measure a society's progress through the books that are both allowed and encouraged. Um, You know, we literally are our stories. And right now, a lot of books, novels in particular, are threatened with bans. Uh, But I believe that stories want to be free, and they will be free. And and stories not only, you know, frame who we are, they frame how our society works. And this actually gives me optimism because stories don't die. You know, they're eternal. So they keep working generation after generation. They'll make it through eventually, if not now. So with that, I look forward to hearing more from Sochio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back, everyone. We have with us today Sochil Gonzalez, who has an MFA from the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, where she was an Iowa Arts Fellow and recipient of the Michener Copernicus Prize in Fiction. Her work has been published in Bustle, Vogue, and The Cut, and she's a contributor to The Atlantic, where her weekly newsletter, Brooklyn Everywhere, explores the gentrification of people and places. Her New York Times bestselling debut novel is Olga Dies Dreaming, and that was published earlier this year. It's a gorgeous book that's a must read if you haven't read it yet. A native Brooklynite and proud public school graduate, she received her MFA in fine art from Brown. Welcome, Sochil. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're absolutely thrilled. And I'd love to ask you to speak about your inspiration for your novel, Olga Dies Dreaming. I've listened to a handful of interviews and you mentioned different inspirations from Sandra Cisneros to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which is quite a range. And so I'm curious about these inspirations and also the intersection of you know, like literature and politics. And you talked about coming to this moment, writing the end train and reading Naomi Klein's The Battle for Paradise. So could you talk about those sort of mutual influences and how they, uh, you know, ended up forming and shaping your book? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of decided I was going to write a novel um, when I got I was applying to MFA programs. So I started kind of thinking about what I might want to write about. And I coincidentally kind of had this idea the day that I found out I got into Iowa um, and I started writing it immediately. But I knew I wanted to write a book about a Latina Puerto Rican woman in in a gentrifying Brooklyn. Um, I was sort of fascinated with the sort of root thing of being from a place, but the place is completely changed so that you haven't moved, but it's like you're living in a completely different place um, and the somewhat surreal experience of that. And at the same time, I very, very, very much wanted to write a larger story that explored some of the issues going on with Puerto Rico and um, colonialism and, you know, the strange and unfortunate relationship that we currently have with the United States um, and the sort of historical, um, you know, history of colonialism on the island and uh, particularly in light of Hurricane Maria. And so really, I decided that when I sort of had that moment of reading while I was on the train, I was listening to um, this album called uh, from Hooray for the Riff Raff, um, who is, she, Alinda Sigata is a Puerto Rican uh, musician. And the song was Rican Beach, and it's kind of about gentrification. And I was reading Naomi Klein's book, and I just had, was like, oh, I'm going to make this character that had been germinating in my mind, a wedding planner who robs from the rich, and she steals to give money to her mom, who's rebuilding after Hurricane Maria. And then it turned into something much different. And I was took some inspiration from my my own mother, who is um, kind of a militant socialist. And I was sent to live with my grandparents because she was sort of traveling the world, working on unionization and different military, uh, anti-military causes in the in, in Latin America. And um and I just had this idea to like give her a brother. And I was like, well, I'm going to make the brother a politician. And the AOC thing came up from the fact that I wanted to sort of show what politicians are, that they're still real people. You know, like I, I always say, I, I talk about AOC because I always think about the fact that she's engaged, which means that she's 
mm. on the wedding, which means that there inevitably must be screaming fights and like frustrated phone calls with her mother about her mother-in-law. Like it's like, there's just no way to not have those things happen. And I'm like, but we never see that side of her. We're never allowed to, you know, she's sort of become this kind of icon. Like she, she kind of exists as this flattened, you know, fully vibrant television personality, but a flattened real human, right? Who's not allowed to have problems or, or anxieties in her personal life. And I think that's like an unfortunate thing that sort of happens to, um, particularly to charismatic politicians of color. They kind of become these, they're forced into this kind of 2D celebrity rule and not given very much wiggle room on either side. So uh, yeah, I, I, I sort of then just started shaping this family and it went from there. And I, I, I was always fascinated just from my old life because I was a wedding planner um, with this idea that like, you know, my parents were so anti-materialism and so like anti-capitalism and that I ended up becoming a luxury wedding planner. And I just thought that that was an interesting kind of generational statement too, you know, like how so many of our parents had bought in the brown power movement and the black power movement. And then we were sort of very excited to sort of dance around to kind of Puff Daddy shiny suit music. And <laughs> so, you know, I, I spent many, many, many um, nights being absolutely frivolous in the aughts in Miami. So I'm happy to be going back down. But I, I really, um, I, I just sort of was intrigued in that tension between generations. And um, yeah, and then kind of once I got the characters going, the rest of it just sort of found itself. So, Jill, I love listening to that answer because there were so many different layers to your story. It just kept, you kept uncovering layer after layer there, and it was really delightful to hear. And one of the layers is the radical time that we're living in in the world. And I think of your book as a radical book in the best of ways, you know, because the book touches on all kinds of injustices that run rampant in this country, and then more specifically about Puerto Rico. And I think a lot of readers probably don't know much about uh, Puerto Rico, and they're, they're going to get a powerful education about the ways in which Puerto Rico is often ignored and how the U.S. doesn't see Puerto Rico as being part of America in the way that it should. And you also write about hurricanes and power grids and corruption and, of course, what's going on and pertinent today. So is it accurate to say that you've written a work of radical fiction? Do you, do you think of it like that? I'm delighted to hear you say that. I, I, I absolutely do think of it that way. And I think I've been a little surprised that more people haven't categorized it that way. Um, I think that what I had set out to do was um, kind of create a bit of a Trojan horse. And, you know, you hear wedding planner and that makes people think one thing and then she meets somebody and then that makes them think something else. And, and there is a love story and it's a genuine love story, but I think it's also a story where these characters run very tight symbolic parallels, you know, about like the larger issues that we're talking about, um, you know, where Olga really in my mind represents when she self-determines herself to neither live against her mother's rules nor against sort of, you know, white, American capitalistic society's rules, I see that as very parallel to what I hope um, will one day happen for Puerto Rico, you know, and um, and I see the Meeches playing a different part, including Dick. So I I did sort of want to write a kind of radical work of, of fiction. Um, I just wanted it to be entertaining because um, my frustration as not just a a Latina and a, a, you know, a person of body descent, like um, in the, in the diaspora, like a diasporican, but as a, just a person that cares about kind of equal rights and having, you know, if we really do all have the same rights as citizens, it shouldn't matter where you're born and our, our vote, if we're really franchised, we should be franchised fully. And like, and I think that these things are very much on my mind and I was very angry at the sort of um, 
I don't know, like duplicity of the way which we even talk about Puerto Rico and that we talk about Puerto Rican citizenship. And so um, I, I think my feeling, though, is that it wasn't an issue that was going to get a lot of concern outside of the group of people that it seemed to directly affect. And I thought I had some clever ideas and, and things that I could satirize and things that, um, you know, I, one of the most interesting things early on was when I was first promoting the book, um, when it first came out, was how many people didn't realize that promesa was a real thing. Like they thought it was a fictional thing that I made up. It sounded so like draconian, you know, like, I was like, no, that's real. Like it's a, it was really interesting in the beginning to get people parsing what was like actually like real policy versus like weird stuff that I just made up. So um, yeah, I think I said, I did set out to sort of write a radical book and I didn't even come to not to go on too long but like I didn't even mean to I didn't come to writing until I was 40 I didn't leave to get my MFA because I had to move out of New York to, to go to Iowa I didn't leave to get my MFA until I was 42 and I think how do I put it it wasn't just wanting to write a book for me. I wanted to write books about the things that I felt that we as a people were ignoring. And I, the art that excites me the most, like I was an artist, like a visual artist and an art historian when I was a younger woman. And I, the art that always got me the most excited was art that was about a larger, a larger social truth, a larger political truth. I love that so much because it segues exactly into my next question, which is just about fiction as a form of activism. And you have this incredibly, uh, I mean, the the mother obvious character, Bianca, uh, sorry, Blanca, is a total activist, right? I mean, so much so that she abandons her children for the liberation of Puerto Rico. And she's an interesting character that I'd love to hear more about just from a character perspective. But clearly, in order to do activism and fiction, it's the story that matters. So thank you for saying it was kind of a Trojan horse. I mean, I, I definitely picked up on that and felt it. And Grant and I, before you came on, we're talking about this notion of fiction as being kind of transgressive. So in people reading this story, how do you think that you can affect change as an author? And also because so many of our listeners are, are writers and authors and maybe hoping to do the same thing. So I, I'd love for you to speak to the power of fiction to affect that change. Yeah, I mean, in the most simplistic way um, that I was blown away by was when Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico earlier this year, I was astonished by the number of readers that reached out to me um, to say, like, they really had an understanding of what this meant. Like, does that make, like, and I, the sense of outrage amongst people that had, like, had read the book, it was like, it, it was a, no longer, like when Maria happened, it was able, and I, I mock this somewhat in the book, like I, I mock how it was sort of turned into this like human interest story that's happening to other quote unquote people. And it just was like a thing that happened. And people really were outraged and donating money and not just donating money to the usual suspects that are kind of these corporate interests, like social, you know, nonprofits, they were donating money to mutual aid groups that were in on the ground in Puerto Rico to like get like them supplies directly and not have to deal with FEMA and like cut out the bureaucracy of the United States. Like, and so I was really, um, in a very real way, like I could, I was amazed at the response. I was amazed at the response. And, um, because I did get lots and lots and lots of, of feedback from people that were not related to being Latino in any way or being certainly not being Puerto Rican or you know, diasporic or anything that were like, I just never knew this. And and then I also would say like, 
another sort of part about the book is really, I did write it actually probably most of the diaspora he could in mind in the sense that we never got taught our history. Like it's not part of the American core curriculum. We don't talk about the the circumstances within which we became a territory of the United States. We don't talk about this historical context within which we were bestowed citizenship or the way in, in which that sort of functions. And I heard from so many, many diasporicans that were like, I'd always been made to feel ashamed that our community was not able to take care of themselves, that we were X, Y, and Z, that we had not done these things. And they were like, I did not know our strong history of resilience. I did not know all that we had been put through. And that just the simple, that shift of self-awareness and self-knowledge is such an important thing in terms of having pride, but I also think in empowering one another um, here on the in the diaspora and on the and on the island, making the, the people on the island feel supported as they try to figure out how to restructure this colonial relationship. Well, so, Jill, you know, while you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking of a lecture I heard when I was an undergraduate in college, and this was probably in the late 1930s or so. But uh, <laughs> Amy Clampett, the poet, she, she said that she started out as a novelist, but that she just couldn't be a novelist because she couldn't write fast enough to keep up with what was happening in the world in real time. Yeah. And um, that's why she became a poet. And uh, I, for some reason, chose the novelist path at that moment. But I'm curious, all these things you're talking about, they are very much of, you know, like right now, you must have felt the sense of urgency in, in, in writing the novel. And I'm just curious, creatively, um, how did you balance that with the fact that it takes a long time to write a novel and a long time to get it published, too? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think I did feel a lot of internal pressure that... Um, it did feel quite urgent when I was writing it. And even the gentrification side of the story, I, I felt like I was literally watching the Brooklyn that I knew continue to crumble. You know, it's like um, in the never ending story, you know, when the kingdom is like dissipating, um, <laughs> like before their very eyes. Um, I tend to write pretty obsessively. So, cause I, I just am finishing, I'm literally like doing my sort of probably second to last pass on my next book. And I realized that I'm just kind of an obsessive writer. So that sense of like things being urgent works well for my process. But I do remember feeling like in the midst of like waiting for anticipating publication, because it was about two years from when I sold it until it actually was published. Sadly, that's like cynicism. We are like, well, I don't think the situation is going to get rectified in the time. I, I like, sadly, I think things are only trending in the opposite direction. And, um, but what I will say is that I do think in some funny way, my next book is also set in the past, not as much of the recent past, but set in the past. And what I've found is that the more that I dive deep into like these kind of themes that are troublesome, the more um, timeless, unfortunately, they become, you know, like um, my, my next book is inspired by the murder and subsequent erasure of Ana Mendieta, the Cubana artist, and sort of all of these themes about whose history gets told and who um, and and violence against women and you know feminism and art and and censorship and authority like empowerments of structures like these things are unfortunately the power dynamics are somewhat still the same and they're still just as urgent and still as timeless so I think unfortunately when we're dealing with these sort of very entrenched problems particularly any problems that deal with the dynamic of imbalance of power. I think that there's a certain timelessness to them that's now sadly allowed me to relax a little bit. <laughs> I, I did still, I still write pretty intensely, but like it makes me slightly less anxious that the moment quote unquote has passed. 
that's an it's a true it's an interesting both sort of like sad way to think about it but also a bit of a relief uh in terms of what you're trying to push out and as long as we're talking about book publishing I mean I kind of wanted to geek out with you a little bit on this yeah. stuff because I was curious so much about your title which is like very evocative but also kind of ethereal in a way and I was wondering if you could tell us the story behind choosing the title and also your equally beautiful cover Oh my gosh. I love talking about the cover. I mean, I, the title is great too, but like, you know, um, the title came so organically that when I've been struggling to title the second book, I was like, what's wrong? <laughs> no, I had sort of been hunting for a name for the main protagonist. And I knew I was like, well, her parents would totally name her after a, a rebel, you know, like a revolutionary. And so I hunted for different stories of different like Puerto Rican liberation activists. And I found Olga Gariga and she had been born in Brooklyn and went to UPR and kind of got the lights went off on for her when she was at UPR and she got very involved in the cause for independence. And I was like, she's the perfect person. Like that's the perfect name. And then I was again, listening to that Hooray for the Riff Raff album and she samples um, in her song, Palante, Alinda, they sample the, Pedro Preti poem and a, an audio recording of him speaking it during an interstitial. And the poem I had been familiar with, it was one of those things that like that lecture, only I forgot about it. Like I'd been exposed to it in college and then I forgot about it. And I immediately was like, this is it because um, Olga Gariga had been, you know, this liberation activist, but Olga in the poem, in the poem, it's this very epic poem. Um, Pedro Prieti was part of the, you know, Nurican poets movement. The it, it, He was completely in tandem with the young lords, like, and the activism of the young lords down on the Lower East Side. And the poem follows um, Juan Miguel, Olga, Manuela, Milagros, and they are all semi-recent arrivals to the mainland, to New York, and they are losing their way. Um, as they try to assimilate into American society and uh, American values. And so Olga dies dreaming of diamonds. At another point, she dies dreaming of winning the lottery. And um, they all die dreaming uh, several times in the poem, dreaming about material things that they'll never attain. And it just seemed to me the perfect way to pay homage to the long history of protest art in Puerto Rican culture, not just literature and poetry, but like in, in, in music. Um, it's seen the perfect metaphor for Olga's dilemma that she's both of these women and then at the same time, none of them. Um, and it just was sort of exactly right. And, and that ha came to me probably like a month into working on the book, whereas literally I like I, I, I had so many different titles on the second book <laughs> that I was like, something's wrong. <laughs> That's interesting because all the guys dreaming, it really does contain different stories within one line there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the cover was awesome. You know, I mean, I was very um, anal, like I had been a wedding planner, so I'm very good at mood boards. Um, and so I put together a ton of mood boards and like a lot of different things about um, the history of the Puerto Rican flag and particularly different shades of blue. And so um, the light blue that is kind of her, well, her chest is the is the Brooklyn skyline, um, which just I always love and get like emotional talking about. And the green and the flowers are the 
the green represents the island and the flowers are the, the hibiscus and that's the uh the national flower of Puerto Rico. And then um, the blue of the other side of her hair is independence blue, which is the uh, the f the color blue that if you see, there's if you ever pay attention, there's two different kind of Puerto Rican flags that you'll see. One has a light blue and one has a darker blue that looks more like the blue in our own United States flag. And the lighter blue um, is a symbol of um, signaling for independence for Puerto Rico uh, because that was the color used in the original flag for an independent Puerto Rico. Huh. So interesting. Yeah, before you came on such a Brooke and I were talking about just the nature of categorization. So if you say rom-com or chiclet, it means like something to to people that doesn't allow for for, for the more serious stuff, like the serious stuff that you wrote about yeah. in this novel to exist. And 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 now I'm kind of um I don't know, your your cover, the way you describe both the, the title and the cover, it's it's I mean, it allows for that, right? It allows for a rom com to exist in a world where there's a lot of stuff to deal with, a lot of stuff to um, you know, be political about. It's funny because like I remember being at Iowa and like somebody commenting like, There's too much happening for these characters. And I sort of thought that what I was also kind of trying to do was paint a portrait of the complexity that um, people of color and Latino people in particular that that are juggling career and family and um, big career and also their own role, like place in the world that is um, has sometimes like, you know, that big movements, like big things about, you know, colonial status of an island actually has implications for people and their families and the way that they live their lives. And so I think, um, yeah, I think that and against the backdrop of that, people still have love. They still have birthdays. Like they still have like anniversaries and weddings and like and funerals and like life still happens even amidst chaos. I mean, we're literally living in like, you know, apocalypse right now, right? Like it's like the, maybe we still have maybe I mean, semi apocalypse like it's like uh, but we still live. Right. And like right. and I think that. I think it's, I always thought that was kind of funny because it was like, but we're literally like, you know, we had, I think like the weekend after there was like an insurrection on the White House, I went to like a birthday party, you know what I mean? Like it's like, yeah. like outdoors at that point, but like, cause there was also a pandemic, but like we still do things to like live, you know? It's interesting because I think when you're talking, what I'm hearing is like, there's just going to be more room in fiction for that kind of complexity and bigness. You know, when I was, I told you, I listened to your book, I didn't read it, but it was just big and there was a lot to follow, but I loved it. And it did have this kind of rom-com feeling. And I have to confess to you, I told Grant, like, even dare I say, chiclet just because it was fun and kind of a, could have been a beach read but then it was totally serious and full of all this radical stuff so I just want to commend you for writing such a complex story that could be so many things thank you so much thank you you know and I I think um it's had such reach and I I think I I think I made the right choice does that make sense like I don't know that had I taken a different tact as many people would be talking about some of the topics that we're talking about which um, I'm happy that I took that tag, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and good luck with book two. We'll be eagerly awaiting it. And thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Social. Thank you. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, Grant, this is kind of an obvious book trend this week because it's been such a topic of conversation everywhere. But this is about writers and authors quitting Twitter. Uh, And I personally made an announcement recently that I'm leaving the platform, and I anecdotally know a lot of writers and authors who've already left. Uh, And I've only talked to a couple people I know personally with huge followings, like over 100,000, who are at least contemplating leaving, but they're not ready to yet for understandable reasons. And I realize it's a hard call to make when you've cultivated a massive following. And I noted in my post uh, on this topic that it was much easier for me to consider because I was only leaving 8,000 followers, but still... Yeah, and who knows, by the time this episode airs, Brooke, uh, there might be a bunch of other things that happen, (laughs) and I might be gone from Twitter, or it might not even exist, because things are moving really quickly (laughs) uh, in the chaos zone. So true. Yeah, I've thought about leaving for a bunch of reasons, but I'm I'm staying for now, in large part because there are thousands of NaNoWriMo writers there, and it's one of my crucial touch points during November. So I'm there to add something a little good to the mix, I hope. That said, I'm, I'm, I've been peeved uh, for a long time uh, because Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and other social media titans, you know, they call their online spaces communities and they sell them as communities, except both of them essentially abuse the people in their communities. You know, Facebook did it with algorithms based on divisiveness. And now Musk is following suit in different ways uh, that is unleashing a lot of hate. And I want to remind both of them that the com, the C-O-M, in community means with. Uh, But neither of these guys seems to know what with means, and they don't know that nourishing a community based on goodness is actually a good business practice. I mean, I wish they would would listen to that, because that's how NaNoWriMo thrives. We focus on nourishing people's goodness and building a community with an ethos of care online. Um, And Musk isn't showing any signs of care. So I might leave, but I'm hanging in there trying to add a voice that puts forth good things to counter the bad things. But Brooke, I'm curious, did you leave for reasons that were more personal or more in protest or both? Yeah, both. I mean, it's impossible to ignore the fact that Elon Musk is both transphobic and homophobic. So honestly, anyone who's LGBTQ identifying or who considers themselves an ally, in my opinion, needs to at least take a hard look at the ways that the platform is continuing to harm this marginalized community. And it's not just the LGBTQ community. It's uh, also there's been so much anti-Semitism on the platform. It's risen like some tremendous percentage since Elon took over. Uh, And my friend and a former guest on the show, Mark Nepo, is one person who left who had a giant following. And he sent out a note to his followers via a public statement. And so I just wanted to read part of it because he's so much more eloquent than I am. Uh, He wrote, in good conscience, I cannot support or be complicit in the escalation of hate speech, prejudice and violence. Under the guise of free speech, we are drifting into unconsidered and unknown rhetoric that relies on shouting more than listening pushing each other more than joining. It kind of sounds exactly like what you just said, Grant. And he evoked Viktor Frankl, the legendary Holocaust survivor, and he wrote about how Frankl declared that there should be a statue of responsibility on the West Coast to accompany the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast.
shows and how freedom is braided with responsibility. So I just thought that was really, really powerful and a powerful motivation. Now, that said, I do not begrudge anyone who decides to stay. Uh, I think that's the very essence of free speech and free will, right? You show up where you want to show up, but to pretend that there are no consequences to our actions seems to me part of the problem right now and part of the social illness that we're all railing against seemingly not knowing what to do with. And yet, you know, there are actions we could take collectively. Yeah, it's really interesting, Brooke, because uh, this is a tough conversation because social media platforms are such a great bullhorn and amplifier and they are our town square in many ways. And as authors, we've been conditioned and, you know, people offer classes and building an author platform, you know, and so we feel like we're supposed to be on the platforms building up our followings, you know, and we you and I've been doing that for more than a decade. Mm -hmm. And so then we're faced with the prospect of what it means to lose that, all that work, all those 8,000 followers, Brooke, I have 8,000 too. (laughs) (laughs) Or to not do what you think you've been told to do, you know, uh, if you want to be recognized. But, um, you know, it's, it's confusing. And I definitely, you know, I'm part of the confused audience about thinking about what to do and understand that a lot of people are going to wait it out like me, essentially. Absolutely. And not everyone needs to take a stand for personal or political reasons or do for that matter. There are individual calculations to every single decision we make. But I guess what I find interesting here is the fact that we're even in this place to begin with, that we have a figure like Musk who's applying such pressure to a social media platform. And we're just seeing so much unprecedented stuff go down, you know, at the very least. So I have certainly been absorbed in following the action, uh, just seeing how messy it is. It's, it's pretty hard not to pay attention. Yeah, it's like watching a fire or a shark attack or something horrible. Things are definitely burning. I know that. But we're not burning. Quite the opposite. We want to have constructive conversations about books and writing with you every week. So please tell your friends and even tell those who aren't your friends. Tell your, your former or your future or your present Twitter friends <laughs> uh, to join us each week because stories do change the world. I've seen proof of it. I'll see proof of it again. So keep believing, keep writing, and we'll see you next week. 